Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank you all so much for minding the Lord tonight and everything you've done and said. And if you've just been sitting back there worshiping the Lord in your own heart and spirit, you've added something to this service too. And I'm awfully grateful that you've been able to do that. Well, I come tonight excited to preach the word. I'll tell you this morning, Brother Tony was calling me the anchor. And I got to thinking, what kind of sermon do you preach when you're the anchor? I was feeling pretty good about that, and then I got to thinking, what is the anchor anyway but the, the dead weight at the end of the chain? And so I thought, well, we'll see what happens. Oh, goodness. I'm going to ask you, I don't often do this because I usually read so much scripture scattered here and there, and I'll probably read some tonight, but there's a section, of passage I'd like to begin with, and so if you wouldn't mind and are able tonight, I'd ask you to stand in reverence, certainly not for the preacher, but for the word of the Lord. Here in the vision that John had that God gave to him, it said that Jesus Christ gave him a revelation and John faithfully wrote it down for us. And in the 19th chapter of Revelation this evening, I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. So again, that is Revelation 19, beginning in verse number 11. John said, Now I saw heaven opened. Hallelujah. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges And makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Praise the Lord. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, Followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress. I want you to hear that again. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father tonight, Lord God, I open up the scripture and I read this majestic vision that John has and I feel too small and too weak to preach on it. But Father God, I'm going to ask you to help us tonight to preach. Help us in our look into the word of God that we would receive everything from your spirit that you want us to have, and please, Lord, don't let this preacher get in the way of that. Father, we ask that in that gracious and wonderful and powerful name of this one who is called the Word of God, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, amen, amen. Well, I'm going to tell you as we get ready to look at something in that, that the message I have for you tonight is not really necessarily the one I wanted to preach to you, I was looking at three or four other things after the Lord brought me to this, and I said, now, Lord, wouldn't you rather I preach on this instead? And he said, not really. And I said, well, Lord, how about this instead of that? I found something over here. I think it'll be so encouraging and so uplifting 
and it'll make people feel just so warm and cozy. And the Lord said, no, no. I want you to come right back to what I had for you to preach to those folks. And so tonight, I'm just going to try to be faithful. And so if you'll allow me that privilege, I'm going to do my best to be faithful to, to preaching the Word of God as He has asked me to do. In verse number 15 of what we read there, again, it says, He Himself, Christ Himself, treads the winepress of, what was it again? It is of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And so tonight, I'd like to spend just a few minutes with you preaching to you about a biblical subject that is absolutely true in the Scripture. It's not maybe our favorite thing to think on, but it's right there nonetheless. I'd like to talk to you about the fierce, the fierce anger of God. The fierce anger of God. I saw a young woman the other day, and she was wearing a t-shirt, and on the back of the t-shirt it said this. It said, God isn't mad at you. And I thought, well, now how about that? How about that message to just share so that just anybody and everybody might walk along and see that written on a shirt? What if everybody who read it believed it? What if everybody who saw it in their mind, in their heart, what connected for them was the idea that there is no anger in God at all toward me. God holds me culpable and accountable for nothing. God isn't mad at me. And what I wanted to do, I wasn't quite bold enough to do it, but I wanted to, I wanted to call her attention and say, Young lady, who told you that? Who told you that God isn't mad at anybody? Who told you that there's no anger of God? I was a little bit too cowardly to ask her, but I didn't even have to because she eventually turned around and I saw the name of a church on the front of her shirt. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? That the church, the church in some places is telling people that there's no anger with God. Is it any wonder that on the whole in the culture we live in, is it any wonder that there are so few people that are being born again? Is it any wonder that few are being converted from wretched lostness to this glorious salvation that you've done such a good job testifying and singing about tonight? My goodness, listen to me. If everybody believed what was on that girl's shirt, nobody get up and give a testimony like that young man gave tonight. Because they'd never be born again. They'd never find the great gift. Never find the treasure hidden in the field. You'd never be born again when there's no fear of God. When even the church is teaching that God lacks the capacity for anger. You ever get mad? Sure you do. You say, yes, brother, but I'm ashamed of it. Why are you ashamed of it? Are you ashamed of it because you got mad unrighteously? Well, if you did, you ought to have been ashamed of it. Repent over it and get on with it. Right? Amen. But it just might be, friend, listen to me now. All those people out there telling you that God isn't mad at anybody, every one of those people gets mad and they feel indignant and they feel righteous in their anger. And what they're saying to you is that they hold moral superiority over God. That they know how to be righteously angry. They understand and recognize injustice. They recognize cruelty. They recognize falsehood and, and mean-spiritedness. And it's on them to be mad about that. But God bless you. Know, God just can't be trusted to be mad at the right things. And so, and so God surely can't be mad at anybody at all. Yes, God has anger. And the Scripture tells me that it is a very 
fierce anger. In fact, I would say to you tonight that God, the righteous judge, is more fiercely angry than anyone in earth or in hell. God is more fiercely angry. Have we not read the Scripture? Remember with me that Noah preached the righteousness of God for all those years that he was building the ark. Now, if I asked most of you what was Noah's job, you'd say, well, he was an ark builder. He was a shipwright. That's what his job was. But I'm going to tell you something you'd be wrong about. That that was just his side gig. A lot of preachers have a side gig. I'm a funeral director. I used to drive a school bus. I'll let you guess which one of them is easier. <laughs> now, now, Noah had a side gig, and his side gig was building an ark. What was his primary occupation? Well, Noah was a prophet. That's what he was. Noah was a prophet. And as a prophet, Noah preached righteousness. He preached while he built. He'd, 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 he'd do a little shaving of them boards and getting them put in place. He'd cut a few timbers and he'd put a little pitch on it. But in the middle of all that, he was preaching the whole time. He was preaching the, the, the righteousness and the judgment of God. And those men of his day were not only unmoved by his preaching, but they mocked the prophet of God. Amen. They mocked him. That old fool. Build a boat on dry ground. Who ever heard of such nonsense anyway? Don't anybody listen to anything he has to say. This man's lying to you. There's no God in heaven that's going to be angry with you. Was Noah angry at them? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me if Noah was mad, if Noah was angry at him or not. The Bible doesn't say. But God in heaven was so fiercely angry at them. He was so angry at them that he destroyed, listen to me now, that he destroyed every living thing on the face of the earth on account of them except for what lived inside that ark. Does that sound like God was angry to you? Because i got to be honest, when I read that, I believe that God was angry. I believe that He was. Amen. Have you ever, have you ever witnessed a deluge? Do you know what a deluge is? Every now and then we have something that's a, a significant rain event. Sometimes we call that a cloudburst. A deluge is like that. It just lasts a whole lot longer. It was about a year ago. I remember it was on probably the, I want to say Wednesday night. I could be wrong with that. Of the Camargo camp meeting I'm in, in Montgomery County, Kentucky. I walked out and looked up at the sky and it was one of those eerie, feeling things. You've looked at the sky, but the color was wrong. You know, just the color of the sky wasn't right. And I just, it unsettled me. And I, I thought, I don't like that. I'm, they were having some stuff after the camp meeting. I thought, I'm going to get in my little car and I'm going to head to the house. And that's what I did. And you know, I don't even know if it rained there, but that, that cloud system made its way up over eastern Kentucky to countryside that is not built to handle water like that. And it opened up on them. I don't know how many people lost their lives I don't know how many millions of dollars, whole, whole towns are just swept up in a torrent of water trying to make its way down, down, down narrow canyons in the mountains that, that were, not, they were not ready for the water that fell on them. And that was in, and that was in one evening. And I, in my mind, and you just, you've probably listened, you've been in the middle of a significant rain event and you've heard the pounding of the water on the roof. 
There's a difference between a light rain that you can take a good nap with and one that you think it's going to tear this place apart. And, and the pounding, the pounding, the pounding. And the Bible tells me that in the deluge that fell on those people that in Noah's day, it wasn't just the rain that fell, but the earth was shaking because God was squeezing the world to break open the fountains of the deep so that the water was coming from above and below. You think about how noisy that must have been inside that ark. And, and yet somehow, and yet somehow inside that ark, over the noise of the great flooding rain, Noah and his family must surely have heard the sound of those men and women pounding on the walls of that ark, pleading that they might be let in. But here was the thing. Noah built the ark, but Noah didn't close the door. Amen? The Bible tells me on the day that Noah entered the ark that it was God who closed the door. And He didn't just close Noah in. He closed the rest of those people out. Amen. Noah couldn't help them. They were beyond the help of his preaching then. They were beyond his invitation. They were beyond any call of grace. Pounded on that door and Noah and his family on the inside, they couldn't do a thing but hunker down on the inside and pray and say, God, we know it that these people are all going to die. We thank you that we are going to, to live. Noah didn't close the door. He couldn't open it. God closed it against them in his fierce anger. Now, when you tell people that in the world today, if you stand up and you preach on that, if you go out and you testify to that story from the Scripture, somebody's going to say something stupid to you. And they're going to say something like this, that may have been the God of the Old Testament, but that's not the God of the New Testament. That isn't how Jesus feels. I'm going to tell you what that is. That is a damnable blasphemy. A damnable blasphemy. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Amen? He said, I and the Father are one. That meant that there was perfect partnership between the Father and the Son. The Father never did anything without His Son's involvement. The Bible tells you in Genesis that God created the heavens and the earth. But John tells you in the New Testament that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that was made. What does that tell you? That from the very beginning, the Father and the Son have been one. The Father never did anything without the involvement of the Son. And that means... That means that when the rains fell and destroyed those wicked men and women, all of them except those eight souls, it means that when those rains fell and destroyed those wicked men and women, Christ was right there agreeing with the Father that it had to be done. Amen? Amen. Have you not read about the fierceness of Jesus' anger when He cleared, cleansed the temple? Of course you have. Actually, I don't know if you know this, but He did it twice. Can you believe that? Those fools made Him tell them twice. He did it in the beginning of His ministry, and He had to go back and do it again the week before He was crucified. You find it in the Scripture. He went and He cleansed the temple twice. It's incredible to me that they made Him tell Him two times. 
And we're going to read about that real quick over in the book of John chapter 2. I'm going to read something to you here. John chapter 2 verse 13 to begin with. And this is what the Bible says. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And He found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. I'm going to tell you what it was. It was a racket is what it was. It's not that they were selling people things that they needed to sacrifice to God. It's that they were extorting from people. They were using God's Word to abuse people. And it made Christ angry. Everybody was in on the shell, the sellers of the of the bulls and the sellers of the of the of the of the doves and the money changers and the priests of God. They were all on the take. And so Jesus got angry, and it says in verse 15: when he'd made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, notice that in verse 16. Verse 16 said, and he said to those who sold doves, specifically to those, he just run the rest of them off. But when he come down to where they were selling the doves, he said, I'm going to tell you boys something and you'd better listen good. Take these things away. Don't, take, don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Why, why, the, why the seller of doves? Now, this is a little bit of an aside. Just bear with me for a moment. Do you know what it was to offer an offering of doves? Do you know what it meant about you? It meant that you were poor. There was a law in the law of Moses that when a male child opened the womb, when, when a, a son was born, a first son was born, that the life of that child had to be redeemed, had to be bought with an offering. And you came and if you were wealthy, you brought a bull. And you gave a bull as an offering to God. And, and it says if you were kind of middle class, middle of the road, maybe you bring a goat or you bring a sheep or something like that. But if you were very poor, God would allow you to bring two doves and to make that as an offering. You think it might have been on Jesus' mind as He comes into the temple there and in His mind He could still see His young mother and father, stepdad really, Mary and Joseph as they come to as they come to pay the redemption price for the Son of God Himself. And it isn't a bull, and it isn't a goat, and it isn't a lamb. It's two little turtle doves is what they have to offer. And He comes down to them, and he, He's been driving them out, but He says, wait a minute. You, you've made me mad. You've made me angry. Then His disciples said in verse 17, then His disciples said, uh, or remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? That's interesting to me they ask that. What sign do you show to us since you do these things? It comes to me when I read that, that they were fishing for something here. When they ask him, in their indignance, he's driven us out. He's made us look like little children being whipped and, and driven forth by... What sign do you show us? And you know what I think that's about? I think this is, they would have accepted any of three different roles who could have come into the temple and done this. They would have let a king come in. Had there been a king of Israel, a king of Israel could have come into that temple court and done whatever he wanted to and given the orders and they'd have had to obey him. But they thought, well, they ain't no king in Israel. Or they would have let a high priest come in. Their high priest had absolute charge 
over the temple, but they knew he wasn't a high priest. Or they would have let a prophet, a prophet who came with a sign, a demonstrable sign that he was in the will of God, a prophet might have done that. And they said, we know you're not a king. We know you're not a high priest. You better be showing us a sign that you're a prophet. You know, of course, that he was all three of those things, don't you? You know that what had walked in among them that day was the king, was the high priest of an order older than that of Aaron, and also a great prophet, not only a prophet, but the word of God in the flesh. Amen. What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. There'll be the only sign you need. You tear this temple down, watch me build it back. Of course, you and I know that he was talking about his own body. Did you notice, did you notice what, what the disciples remembered about him? Zeal for your house has eaten me up. When we talk about somebody today as being particularly zealous, what do we mean? They mean they're enthusiastic. We mean they're energetic. Somebody says, oh, what a, what a zealous young man you are, right? What a zealous young lady you are. You understand they had a different context in the time of Christ. The word zeal was connected with the word zealot. And what was a zealot? A zealot was someone who was so inflamed. Inflamed by the things that were wrongly done to the people of God and especially to the house of God that they were known to walk up to people in the crowd and take a small dagger and empty their guts. And Christ comes and He drives them out with His whip and He tells them all these things and His disciples said it was like looking at a zealot in action. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Mark 11 tells us that Jesus again cleansed the temple in the last week of His preaching. He also tells us that on the way to do that, on the way to do that, He stopped and He cursed the fig tree. You remember the fig tree that Jesus cursed. He comes looking on it for fruit. He's hungry and He, and he goes to it. He says it really wasn't the season for figs, but He went looking for figs on it anyway. You say, well, well why did He expect figs? Hey, He made that tree. He can expect whatever He wants to of it. Amen. And he looks at that tree and there's no fig to be found. And he said, let no one ever eat a fig from you ever again. Why? Because it was the day of visitation for that tree when its maker came looking for fruitfulness on it. And when there was nothing for him, it made him angry. And he said, you're going to be cursed. And the Bible says that it was, it was cursed and it dried up from the very, from the very roots. What, what, do you, what do you think that God would be looking for today? Is there, is, there any, is there any looking for fruitfulness on His part? Is there, any, is there any coming of Christ to maybe not so much a fig tree these days, but to an individual saying, I have made you for my purposes and I am looking into your life right now to see if there be any fruitfulness in you? And what would you and I do, friend? What would you and I do if we came under the examination of Christ and He was looking into your life saying, I'm looking for some resemblance, some, some sign that you belong to me, that you're following after me. And there wasn't anything to show for it. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that put us in a, in, a hard, in a hard spot? Well, sure it would. Amen. Amen. You know, there, there are people today, by the way, there are people today that sit in churches and they put on an air of pious reverence and praise. They lift their hands to some gentle worship song. But they would have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus at all if they had seen Him in the temple on that day, blazing in fury and lashing with that whip. 
There are people who just love to come to church and they love to sing little songs and they love to feel warm and toasty. But if they'd really seen Christ on that day, they'd say, I can't follow that. I can't have anything to do with that. What anger. What anger there was in that. Oh, brother, no, no, no. My Jesus wouldn't behave that way. Well, I'll not argue with you. Your Jesus probably wouldn't if that's how you feel. <laughs> no doubt you're right. But the Jesus of the Scripture would because He surely did. Amen? The crucified and risen King would. He behaved exactly that way. Somebody said, well, I don't believe He really connected the whip with anybody. He just kind of banded it around a little bit, twirled it some. I'd like you to go back and tell that to them people who were left with welts on them. Right? Any of y'all get any welts when you was kids? Made your mat mama mad one too many times? Any of them sent you to cut your own switch before? You ever had that happen to you? Ain't that adding insult to injure? Well, Jesus didn't do that. He, he took care of the whip business himself. But I believe he burned them with it, and he burned them with it. Go over in the book of Matthew, chapter number 23. I'm going to try not to take too long tonight. Matthew, chapter 23. Jesus said something here in that woe chapter. Matthew 23 is the woe chapter in the Scripture. He really lets some of those Pharisees and other leaders have it in what he says. In verse 32, Fill up then, he says, the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, you brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Was that Jesus talking like that? Somebody said, well, it sounds more like John the Baptist. Look it up. Them letters are red. That was Christ saying, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the condemnation of hell? He looked the Pharisees one time, a bunch of them dead down and said, You will die in your sins. You are going to hell. Wow. Down in verse number 38, See, he says, your house is left to you desolate. Read in Luke 10 what Jesus says to the impenitent cities where he preached Oh, let me go read that to you. Luke chapter number 10, verses 13 to 15. What does he say there? Let me get back to where I was trying to be here. Luke chapter 10, verses 13 to 15. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who rejects you, he says, well, I'm going to need to read that part, I guess. But he says, you who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. If that be true of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, what must be true of America today, by the way? I want you to think about that with me. Exalted to heaven. That's what he said to Capernaum. Why was Capernaum exalted to heaven? Capernaum was exalted to heaven because of the mighty works that Christ worked therein. Right? You don't find God sending Christ to work mighty works in Tyre or in Sidon or in Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? He worked those works 
in Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin and all those other towns around there. And he says, it'll be more tolerable for... They'll fare better in the judgment of God because what God has done in you has made you so much more accountable. Right? Now, now has, has Christ done any mighty works where we live? Well, let me tell you something, brethren. Did, didn't he say to you and me, because I go to my Father... And send to you the Holy Spirit. Mightier works than these you will do. What does that, what does that mean for where we live? When, when the world, this, this, this place where we, where we live has been so filled with the mighty, the mighty works of God wrought by Christ. Through the church, through the working of the Holy Spirit. Exalted, exalted to heaven by God's great blessing. But that comes at a cost. To whom much is given... Much from him will be what? Be required, right? Surely the fire of God's fierce anger must be kindled against, against our nation. I almost think that you and I better be praying maybe like, maybe like Nehemiah. Remember when Nehemiah started praying in the beginning of Nehemiah? He prayed and said, oh God, oh God have mercy on our sinful nation. On our sinful, Lord, how we have wronged you over and over and over again. We are a sinful, wicked people and we need the mercy of God. We ought to be praying that way for our own country. Amen. Because the fire, if God is the same yesterday and today and forever, we must therefore be treasuring up a good deal of wrath against our own nation. Well, let me ask you this, talking about things like that. At whom is God angry? Who does God get mad at? Who does He get mad at? Somebody says, well, well, God gets angry at sin, but not really at sinners themselves. You heard that? You've ever heard that? Well, God's mad at sin, but not really at sinners. I guess it comes from the fact that we kind of get too caught up in the metaphors that we like for God the best. There are some things that the Scripture uses to help us try to understand who God is by, by telling us what God is like. And it gives us some examples of that. For example, the Bible tells you that God, that our, our Lord, for example, is a shepherd, right? He is a shepherd. He is the great shepherd. But you know that He's more than a shepherd, right? Yeah? Yeah? Well, the Bible says that God is a father. And He is. He's a father. But you know that He's more than a father, don't you? The Bible says that God is love, and He certainly is that. But you know that there's more to God than just love and, and, and affection and mercy. Praise God, those things are abounding. The Bible says where sin did abound for those in Christ, where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Somebody says, well, God's angry at sin, but He's not angry at sinners. themselves." My friend, that is pure nonsense. So very often we think of sin as something that is independent of the sinner. As though it has a life of its own. No. No. Sin is what is done by sinners. Right? It's what is done by sinners. They are the authors of it. They are wholly responsible for every disobedience. And God, while God has mercy... And God is reaching out to you with the grace bought at a great price through His Son's blood. At the same time God is doing that, God is at the very same time fiercely, fiercely angry with sinners. Fiercely angry. He's angry at them for stealing from Him. He has created them 
for His own purposes. Friend, if that's you, and that's really all of us tonight, we should say that. He has created you. He has created your life for His own purposes. And those sinners have stolen from Him His perfect right to use their hands, their feet, their minds, their tongues for His glory. They have stolen away their hearts from loving Him. And not only are they guilty of all their own pride and lying and hypocrisy and hatred and cheating and lust and adultery and idolatry, they are fearfully guilty of the blood of Christ. Are you born again tonight? Most of you probably are. Praise God. Praise God you've been translated and conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And the wrath of God has for you been passed over, much as death passed over the Israelites who were under the blood mark in the days of the Exodus. But friend, if you're not born again, can I just tell you that one of the things that you're, the greatest of things that you're guilty of is you're guilty of the blood of Christ. You're guilty of the death of His Son. Beyond all that, you're guilty of despising and rejecting His Holy Spirit by whom He has reached out, pleading with you, come now and let us reason together. Your sins can be forgiven. Though they are crimson, they can be white as the driven snow. Though they're scarlet, they can be white as wool. This is what the Holy Spirit says to you over and over and over. But so many sinners today simply will not hear. They will not listen to what the Spirit says. And the Bible gives this remark on them in Romans 2, 5, and 6. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Amen. The fierce anger of God's wrath is not to be trifled with. It is not a joke. It is, in fact, the most dangerous thing in the world today. The most dangerous thing in the world today. The fierce, righteous anger of God against sinners is what fuels the fire of hell. Say that again. The fierce, righteous anger of God against sinners is what fuels the fire of hell. Hell is the experience of the unbridled wrath of God. Now somebody may ask me, and I've been asked this many times in fact, do you think that Jesus experienced hell? Do you believe Jesus experienced hell? And I'm going to tell you, I absolutely 100% do. I absolutely believe that He You know that Jesus was burned in the hellfire wrath of God at the cross. I wish I could preach the gravity of what that means effectively. I wish I could say it where it startled us because it ought to startle us. When Christ was dying on the cross, and those soldiers were mocking and laughing at the foot of the cross and gambling for His garments and 
when one of the thieves beside him was saying, you saved yourself and others save us. When here come the priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and others of Israel wagging their tongues and mocking and laughing. None of that mattered. None of that mattered. You know what mattered? You know what was really important? What was really important, what was really happening there is that he was in the very middle of the hellfire wrath of God. This is what is on his heart. This is what is real. When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the love of the Father for the Son was turned aside as He drank down the cup of God's wrath on your behalf and on my behalf down to the very bottom of it. You understand when Jesus was in the garden and He said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. It was not the mocking and it wasn't the beating and it wasn't even the nails. It was the wrath of God He was talking about. Amen. And Jesus was in that hellfire wrath of God. He who had committed no sin drank the cup of God's wrath for us. Now, I told you all that I'm a funeral director. I may have mentioned that before. Anyway, so as a funeral director, I get some interesting moments along the way. One of the things I get to do from time to time, um, I'm kind of the guy that makes makes the crematorium runs. What that means is I take the bodies of people being cremated to the, to the crematorium. Usually what that means is I take them in a van and I go over there, I wheel them in, and there's a, there's a big walk-in cooler, and I'll push them in there, and I'll log them in, and i leave. But, but every now and then I, I go in there while the, while the cremation is actually going on. And I was over there one day, and the, and the operator of the crematorium said, you want to watch this? <laughs> sure. Sure, why not? Right? And so he, he was in the middle of a, of a cremation. And, and so there's a, there's a big, there's a big, called a retort. It's a big oven, brick lined on the inside. It's got a humongous gas burner in the top of it. And then it's got secondary burners in it as well. And it, it'll heat up to a couple thousand degrees. And that's pretty hot. I don't know about you, but that's pretty hot where I come from. And so... You, you have this body in a, in, a, in a box, a fiberboard or cardboard box, and then it just, when he opens that door up, he's got to stand back and he, he, he pushes that, that, that body in, and there's a, there's a burner right over the torso of the body. And, it, and it's, it actually ignites the fat in the body. The body catches on fire. I know this is great. You came to, glad you came to church tonight, aren't you? <laughs> What's for supper, by the way? <laughs> but so the body, the body catches on fire and starts to burn from here outward. But in the, in the middle of this process, he has to do more work. You don't just, it's not like Ron, you know, the Ron Pope, whatever things, set it and forget it. No, there's stuff to do in the middle. And, and in the middle, he has to open that door up again and he has to reach in there with a long rake and pull the lower parts of the body back up under the burner. But you don't just open that up. You don't just, you don't just do that. There's some stuff that you got to have on because there's so much intense heat inside that chamber. And so before he, before he opens that up and he opens it just as narrowly as he can to do what he's got to do, he's got to put on an asbestos smock, a, a covering, and big thick asbestos gloves and a face shield because he's going to be standing and staring right into that incredible... 
not just heated at this point now by, by the burner, the gas burner, but of a burning body on the inside of that. And that body is now producing heat of its own. I mean, that's grisly. I know. I'm sorry to tell you about all that. You didn't want to know it. I know you didn't. But, 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 but you, you watch this guy, and he reaches in there, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he's, pulling that, he's pulling that toward him there. Um, that covering, that covering is everything. Because if he doesn't have that covering on, that, that fire, the heat that is meant to consume the dead will burn him. And do you know something? That's just exactly what Christ is for us. That hellfire wrath of God, that burning intense hatred of God for sin, Christ is the only thing that you can put on that could ever protect you from that most dangerous of all things, from the hellfire wrath of God. If you're not covered in Him, my friend, you are in deep, deep trouble. You cannot, you cannot sustain an encounter with the wrath of God. With that said, I'd like to tell you one more thing, and I'm almost done. I say one more thing, and then I lose count. I have trouble counting to one without getting subtracted, so bear with me. We'll see how it goes. But can I tell you, with all that said, can I tell you that for you and me, fire is an unavoidable reality? You're going to be in the fire. I'm going to be in the fire. Your children are going to be in the fire. Somebody's thinking, oh, where this is going? What are you talking about? You're just telling us about Christ who saves us from the fire. Now you're telling us that, that we're going to be in the fire. That sounds disturbing. And I hope that it does because it's entirely my intention to disturb you a little bit. I'd like to disturb you with that truth if I could, that fire is an unavoidable thing. You're going to be in the fire, and I'm going to be in And as a matter of fact, not just a little bit, but we're going to be baptized in fire one way or the other. Baptized in fire one way or the other. But which fire? You see, there's another kind of fire. There's another kind of fire. And God, through Christ's suffering, has made a way of escape for us from the hellfire wrath of God. And I give Him glory tonight for that. I'm thankful that because I was deserving of hell, and I can't tell it any other way than that, I was deserving of hell. And you, you, sweet little old you, you were deserving of hell. You have committed enough sin to consign yourself to an eternity apart from all good and righteous and tender and merciful things. You've done that and I've done that. Every one of us guilty before God. God will by no means compare you to anybody else. He will by no means grade you on a curve. And yet, Christ has died for you. He has absorbed the heat, as it were, of the wrath of God so that if you are in Christ, remember God's great anger fell on the world and everything alive on the earth except for what was in the ark was destroyed. You better be in Christ. Amen. You better be in Christ. But I'm going to tell you what. Escaping from that wrath, from that fire, must put us 
in the blazing hot fire of the Holy Spirit, burning out of us all the old impurity and making us clean and fit as a dwelling place for God. It's the one fire or it's the other. Amen. Either the fire of hell, the fire of God's wrath, or the fire of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our brother preached to us last night, if I remember correctly, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he read in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came as a rushing mighty wind. Amen. And cloven tongues as a fire came and sat upon each of them. Amen. And there's a scripture that comes from the book of Proverbs. It's about adultery, but it applies here too. Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned by it? Can you take the Holy Spirit into your bosom and not be changed by it? Amen. See, the Holy Spirit is what comes. Comes into our lives. I can't I think it might have been Sister Sarah the other day that was, was preaching on the holiness of God. I can't remember exactly who, who said this. I think it was her. I think it was her talking about the, the vision that Isaiah had of the temple. And Isaiah said, oh God, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the angel said, well, let's just fix that. And he takes that, that coal, that life-burning coal from the altar. Amen. And you picture it with me. Here's the altar of God, that big brazen altar where they come and they, and they kill all those animals and they make that sacrifice. And those burning hot coals have already absorbed the power, the, 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 the cleansing of the blood that dripped into them. Amen. And he takes that blood-soaked coal that's still yet on fire and he touches him with it and he says, This has made you clean. Amen. You know what the Holy Spirit does in your life when He comes with the Holy Spirit fire? He comes with the Holy Spirit fire to change you. You, you know how we can sing that song, Just As I Am? That's everybody's favorite altar call song, isn't it? If for no other reason than that you can probably remember all the words and have to look at the book the whole time. Yeah. Just as I am, just as I am. But the point of the Scripture is that He by no means intends to leave you that way. He wants to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And that is a fire unto itself. John the Baptist said, I just baptize with water. That's all I do. That's all I got, a Jordan River. I baptize you with water. There's somebody coming after me, though. I'm not worthy to carry sandals for him. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? And so, so, so again, I'm going to say it to you. I said last night, I believe, God's purpose in your life was never just to forgive you was to fill you with the Holy Spirit fire from God. Amen. To put you in that Holy Spirit to be made a fit and clean dwelling place for God. But so many, listen to what I'm saying to you now. I'm almost at the end. But so many people want to be saved from the one and yet have nothing to do with the other. Most people who profess Christ today, they're just trying to get out of the fire of hell. But you go talking to them about the fire of the Holy Spirit and they start to get a little squirrely on you, right? Get a little edgy. Now, hold on a minute. I just wanted the basic model of Christianity. Didn't need no deluxe version. Just wanted the entry level. That's all I need. Friend, that's a, that's a horrible mistake for us to make in our preaching that there is any such thing as that. Amen. We can't be preaching and teaching that. So many people want to be saved from the fire of hell, not have anything to do with the Holy Spirit. They call themselves Christians, but in truth, they're more afraid of holy. They're more afraid of Holy Spirit fire than they are of hellfire. Can you believe that? They're more afraid, more afraid of Holy Spirit fire than they are of hellfire. How do we know that? Because they're more afraid of holiness than sinfulness. 
right? Because they're more afraid of holiness than they are of sin, right? They're much more comfortable trying to convince themselves and say to people that sin, that sin is inevitable, that you must sin. There's no escape from sin. You can't live apart from sin. And they'll tell themselves that, and they'll tell each other that all day long, all day long, all day long. But you come among them and you say, by the working of Christ and the Holy Spirit, you can live a holy life. And they'll get mad at you about it. What are you talking about? You know what it is? It's they're more afraid of holiness than they are of sinfulness. And so they're more afraid of Holy Spirit fire than they are of, than they are of hellfire. They, they want their children, they want their children to be saved. But they don't know for sure if they want them to be spirit-filled or not. Now listen, as long as we keep defining holiness as the things that we don't do, we'll probably get some of them on board, right? When holiness means, you know, we don't cuss and we don't chew and we don't go with those who do. <laughs> All right, sure, right? Holiness means we got a list of stuff we, we don't do no more. Well, I mean, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that God intends to burn out of you, refine out of you through your experience of holiness. And I think most people like the idea of their kids growing up and being decent people who don't do all these wrong things. But I'm going to tell you what, what the Holy Spirit will do in your life is so much bigger and more than that. Amen. I mean, that's just the beginning. The Holy Spirit might make your kids weird. He just might, might move them off to Haiti on your rock. <laughs> right? The Holy Spirit might take your kids and do some crazy things with their lives. Almost like he thinks he owns them or something. Almost th like he thinks they're his before they're yours. Right? And you say, oh, no, no, no. I just want my kids to be good little boys and girls and go to church and act right. But then I want to make sure they also get a great job and make a ton of money. <laughs> and be, be so blessed. By and, and he may say, that's not anywhere at all in the plan that I have for you or your children. I'm going to do something with them where they're going to, they're going to live like an outcast in the world. This man came to Jesus. I want to follow you wherever Jesus said foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He might take your children if they're filled with the Holy Spirit. and He might make them vagabonds. He might send them to minister to people that you don't like very much. He might make them more zealous for God than you are. What are you going to do then? That's all I need. These kids coming here preaching at me. Right? You hear me? Yeah. Yeah. The Holy Spirit fire, when it touches people, it changes people. And, 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 and I know sometimes we think, well, we got some bad habits we need to have, you know, kind of smoothed out a little bit, but I'm not looking for a whole remodel job. And the Holy Spirit says, no, no. I'm going to burn this thing plumb down and start all over. <laughs> right? I'm going to take that sweet grandchild of yours and completely kill them and build them over from the ground up. I'm going to take your life and gut it and start all over with it. Amen. Amen. Is hell fire or is Holy Spirit fire? But it's one or the other. And they're standing in between business. Where, where are you standing? Where's there room for that? The Bible describes no ground in the middle. Amen. Amen. Can I tell you that God is 
fiercely angry. He is fiercely angry at sinners. I know he, listen, listen, I know I could stand here and preach a message that is just as true, and I don't want to lose this. Yes, he loves you. He loved you so much that the Bible said that God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. But if you won't be saved by Christ, you are all that is left to you is the wrath and indignation of a holy God saying, I gave everything, everything I had to save you, and you would not. Think of him looking at the city of Jerusalem. I would have gathered you together and held you close like a hen gathers her chicks. You wouldn't let me. And now your house is left to you desolate, desolate. And the same thing is said to you and I as individuals tonight. God is looking into your life saying, there's so much I want to do in you, but if you're not willing, who do you say? When you, who do you call to for help when you can't even say, God, help you? Right? Right? And again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to torment you or make you afraid, but if the Holy Spirit and the Word of God are true and you understand these things to be true, and you're not where you need to be, friend, that ought to... That ought to motivate you. It ought to move you. And so the invitation to you is this. The invitation to you is this. If you are, if you are, are a candidate for all the anger of God to fall on you for your sins that you have committed, and you are not behind the covering of Christ, you're not in the ark. There is one name and only one name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. What are you waiting for? Another Messiah? What are you waiting for? Another gospel? It will be no gospel. This is the only way. And so friend, if you need that, why on earth, why on earth would you want to hesitate as though you could guarantee yourself of even tomorrow, of even another hour? You are held up over hell itself by the grace of God, but, but not a covenanted grace. You need that grace covenanted by Christ. But to step out of this fire is to step into the other one. To say, God, here I am, and you have forgiven me, and you've given me mercy. Now bring the Holy Spirit fire right here. And let him do in me whatever he wants to do. Yeah, there's stuff I probably need to quit doing. There's probably stuff I need to start doing. But Lord, the truth is, I just need to be somebody different than I have been. I need you to remake me completely. Lord, it's almost like, like I just need to be born again. Why don't you come in and remake me through the working of the Holy Spirit? Father, I'm ready for the fire. Thank God it didn't hellfire. God, I'm ready for Holy Spirit fire. Do you need anything tonight like that? Come on, brother. Come right on. Where, where are you at? Is it, well, there might just be one person that has, has slipped in here tonight, and you've been, maybe you've been coming to church some. Maybe you've been trying to get in the groove of this thing. You say, I guess I'm on, one day I'm going to become a Christian by osmosis. No. Friend, you're going to have to decide. You're going to have to say, yes, sir, Lord, I'm coming. Yes, Lord, 
I want to be forgiven. I want to be, Lord, I want to be remade. Is it, is it maybe that there's somebody here today saying, you know, I've asked Christ to forgive me, but I have resisted. I have resisted everything the Holy Spirit has been trying to do in me. Maybe he's told you something he wants you to do, and it's part of that fire in his life. A fire in your life, rather. You, you know what he's trying to do, and you're resisting it. I'll tell you one more story real quick. Short, short, short story. My friend Ben Spencer, an old fella, the old Church of God preacher, he died a couple years ago in his 90s. Somebody asked him one time, they said, Brother Ben, what would you have been if you hadn't been a Church of God preacher? You know what he said? Lost. I'd have been lost. Said, Hold on a minute. Now, are you saying that you have to be a preacher to be saved? So you have to be a Church of God preacher to be saved? What, what are you saying here? They asked him when, he asked, when they asked him and he answered, he said, Brother, Brother Ben, what do you mean by that? And he said, this is what God called me to be. This was what God led me to. And if I said no to the calling of God, do you think that wouldn't have cost me everything? This was the Holy Spirit's work in my life. This is what he showed me that he wanted me to be. If I had said no... I'd have been lost. I'd have been lost. Denying the Holy Spirit's access to your life comes at a steep cost. A steep, steep cost. I guess I'm done talking, Brother Justin. You can come lead us in a song if you want to. Appreciate it. God bless you. Let's stand together. If you need to pray, why, well, it's a good time to. Here's a good altar to pray at. Page 143. In your big book, page 143.
Thank God for another soul-searching message. And I trust that you understand that what was preached tonight, and you can thank God, it's a preliminary judgment. You see, most likely you're going to walk away from this message and only God knows if you're ever going to come back and do something about your soul. But if you leave this world, it'll be too late. And I think procrastination is one of the most dangerous things and one of the best strategies that Satan leads when you're in a service like this. And the devil's telling you, well, there'll be another opportunity. Someday, that moment's going to come when there's going to be no opportunity for you. And then hell will become a reality, but it'll be too late. If you're smart and you know you're not living like God wants you to live, if you're smart, you would come down to this altar and you would make peace with God. And you would do it tonight. So we're going to sing one more verse. Not anything I can add to this message. But if you walk out of here tonight, your heart's going to get just a little harder. And it's not going to be as easy and as convenient as it is right now. So if you know you need to be, if you know you need something from God tonight, come and get it. It's free. And then you won't have to worry if when you leave this building, Jesus suddenly splits the clouds or suddenly somebody goes left of center or if your heart stops beating. Get it settled tonight. Just makes sense. Today is the day of salvation. The Bible recognizes that there may not be a tomorrow. Beautiful message, Brad. You preached it with a double anointing. So we're going to sing one more verse and maybe somebody just needs a little more opportunity, a little more time to think about what they're going to do before we close. God bless you.